I promise this week that there won't be any pictures of guys with abs uh, <laughs> like we had the last time that we, uh, that we got together. Um, so we should, be, we should be all safe there. Uh, so yesterday uh, I spent time uh, at a presbytery meeting. I got to be together with a whole bunch of people that are within our, our presbytery. And uh, it was just a joy to kind of be able to gather and, and be with everybody. We were at Greystone Presbyterian Church, which is my dear friend Rob's church. And so my family actually went all together and we stayed at his house the night before. And they had some great stuff for the kids and for spouse breakouts and all those kinds of things. And it was just kind of neat to be able to get out of town for a little bit and gather uh, with our dear friends over there. Um, one of the agenda things that was kind of neat is we, we commissioned... A commissioned pastor, which I didn't think was a thing, it's not. It's like pre-ordination, but they commission essentially a ruling elder of a of a church to be able to temporarily serve some pastoral functions in a new plant, a new church plant, before it kind of becomes a full uh, official recognized church. And so we commissioned a guy named Keon to uh, be the pastor, the commissioned pastor of Bridge City Church, which is in Cleveland, which is a joint uh, church plant between the EPC and the Eco denomination. If maybe some of you might be familiar with that. And so we got to ask Keon a bunch of fun questions and hear testimony of how the Lord's kind of been at work in that plant over the past few months already. And it's a really kind of a cool story. That church, it came out of a couple different places. I think Bay Presbyterian, one of our sister churches, is kind of a co-sponsor of it. Uh, but he was telling us stories about this church. And one of the things that's really unique and, and cool about it is that it's an incredibly diverse group of people. And diverse in many different ways, diverse, uh, certainly racially diverse, but economically diverse as well, um, kind of nationally diverse. You have all kinds of people from all kinds of different countries of all different kinds of skin colors and money backgrounds and everything. It's kind of a, a neat thing that we don't see that often in the church today because most churches are not like that. Right? Most churches in the, in the country are, are kind of anemically undiverse. And now, we don't just strive for diversity for diversity's sake, right? We don't just want to say, all right, we need to have so many of this color, so many of this color, so many people making under 100K, so many people over. That's not what our goal is of any kind, right? We're not looking at those things. But when we, when we realize that most of the churches that we have in our country today, kind of everybody in them looks a lot the same, right? That's kind of how it is. Right? That's just the way it is. And, and this church up in Bridge City is a unique kind of counter to that. It's this radical unity across the different boundaries of things that normally tear people apart, but yet they're coming together under this umbrella of Christ. Right? Now, it's important to note that when we say that most churches aren't diverse, that doesn't mean that most churches are prejudice or, or racist or any of those kinds of things. We're not, I'm not going down that route. But, but we have to understand that there is a natural tendency, probably because of some kind of sinfulness in our hearts and minds, there's just a natural tendency for us as humans to congregate near people that are like us. Right? It's just something we do. And, and like us in many ways. It might be like us politically. It might be like us kind of same time of frame of life. Like you're friends with, if you have kids, you're friends with people who have kids. If you're an empty nester, you're friends with a lot of people who are empty nesters because you can actually go fun places together in your life, right? But we congregate, like we just do this, whether it's in a, a, a racial kind of hot button type of way or these minor, smaller ways, we just like to congregate together with people that are like us. It makes us feel more comfortable and it, it's kind of mostly our default. 
And so to stray from that takes effort and, and a little bit of kind of a kick in the teeth sometimes, right? And it can create conflict because what you have to do to be diverse is you have to start to listen to other viewpoints. You have to start to deal with people who don't do things the way you would do them or want to do them. And you have to start to learn potentially to like turn another cheek or think of other ways or be content with something that's not your ideal. And those things are hard things to do as God's people. It's human nature to congregate together. Now, into this dilemma that we have enters the church in places like Ephesus. And and in Ephesus, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at Ephesians, and Paul is is taking the gospel reality and talking to the people in Ephesus about how that shapes the way that they work, relate, think, do, live, spend. All of these things are shaped by this, this gospel. And after he spends a lot of his time talking about this in the context of community, right, the big stressor that Paul throws in is this idea of Gentile inclusion. We've been talking about it for two or three weeks now. Right, this idea that now, after Jesus, the Gentiles are included. And this morning, in Ephesians 3, Paul kind of wraps up his theological side of the Ephesians argument. Right? We talked about this at the beginning. Chapters 1, 2, 3 are kind of the theory, theoretical, theological explanation of the gospel. After this week, we get really practical. Right? Paul starts to say, how does this actually look in places like relationships and marriage and family, and rearing children, and church community, and all these kinds of things, right? How does it play itself out that the gospel has come in the various silos or spheres in which you live and exist? But today, he finishes by driving this community point home in a unique way. And so let's stand together, and we'll take a look at the first half of Ephesians, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, together. Read Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men, in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostle and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. It's the word of the Lord. All right, have a seat. So now the the first thing that we need to address here is this kind of idea that Paul talks about of the mystery. And we have to address it because 
this is one of those times where the Bible uses a word in an entirely different way than we're used to using a word. And so we hear mystery, we conjure up certain things. We think about, you know, things like, like Sherlock Holmes or CSI, crime scene investigation, like the mysteries. For us, mystery is kind of the unknowable. It's out there. It's mysterious. Are there UFOs? I hope that's not a hot button topic in this church. <laughs> we're going to talk, you know. Someone's going to email me and be like, yeah, they're real, they're... We're not going to go there, right? But that's the kind of thing that we think about when we hear mystery. Like, it's, it's stuff that we, we don't know, right? Are we ever going to find life on another planet? Th those types of questions. But that's not what Paul is saying when he says the word mystery here. The word mystery in, in Ephesians, and most of the places you will read about it in Scripture as a whole, comes from the Greek mysterion. And here's kind of the, the long, there's really no, like, few word definition. But here's what it means. It means something beyond natural knowledge. But it has these undertones of revelation to it. And so what it, what it is, is something that is really beyond what you should be able to know, but something that has been revealed to you so that you do know it. Does that make sense? So in other words, when he uses mystery in here, he's saying something that is kind of beyond the natural scope of what's possible but because of God, it's understandable. It's been made known to you. This isn't a mystery anymore. Right? They're not walking in the mystery of things. Right? This has been revealed to them. Something could not have been naturally known, but now it has been revealed. Essentially, there's nothing mysterious to us now about this mystery because God has told us what it's all about. And then Paul doesn't really keep us waiting at all. He tells us straight up what the mystery is in verse 6. Here it is again. The mystery is, sometimes Paul's just blunt, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the big mystery, guys. The Gentiles are part of this. And you go, well, that's not very mysterious at all. Exactly. <laughs> it's not. To you. But to the Jewish mindset, this is a very mysterious thing to think about. Now, we keep talking about this idea of community in Ephesians and Gentile inclusion, and we talked about how we are the Gentiles versus the Jews, you know. But, but one of the things we have to understand is when the Bible says Gentiles, in this context and story, it, it kind of, in a way, doesn't necessarily mean us in modern times. Right? What we haven't yet hit on is the understanding of who we actually are in this narrative in Ephesians. Because we read this, and we think we are the Gentiles. And when we are, we're the non-Jewish people. We're the people that before Jesus Christ you know, died and rose and grafted us in as non-Jewish folks, we wouldn't have been part of the promise, and now we are. So yes, we are Gentiles. But in terms of the, the lesson of how community is supposed to function, we're actually today kind of more like the Jewish people of this time. And here's, here's what I mean by that. See, we think that we are all the Gentiles, but we're not. Comparative to the early church today, we are more the Jews than the Gentiles. Here's what I mean by that. It's important to remember what the issues of the early church division were. The Jews, they were resistant to Gentile inclusion into the church. You see it all throughout the book of Acts and even beyond that, part of you know, Galatians talks about it, Ephesians talks about it. It's like wherever Paul goes, he has to convince them that they're part of, that the Gentiles get to be part of the promise. And the Jews resist it. And, and it was not as we, as we kind of like to think about 
this superiority type of thing. I think we give the Jewish people a really bad rap. We start to say, wow, they must have been really exclusionary people. Almost has like a little bit of a supremacist ring to it, right? They thought they were so much better than all these filthy Gentiles. And so they didn't want them to have any part in what they were doing. But that's not really how it was. See, for the Jews, the Gentile exclusion wasn't so much about we hate these people or we think that they're less people, that they're less human, that they don't deserve life. Like it's not, it's not a matter of what they thought about them. It's not like today we have racism in this world, and, and, and racism says that there is a group of people that based off of their nationality or the color of their skin or whatever, they're actually less human than we are. That's, right? That's not what the Jewish people are doing. What's happening here is for centuries, the Jewish people have been pulled out of Egypt by God and given an identity based on what? The, someone say it, L-A-W, the law, right? No one knew the answer to that one. The Jewish people, their identity and who they were, right? It wasn't necessarily a, well, they all look kind of the same shade of brown. No, it was based on the law. The Lord calls them out of Egypt. He gives them the Torah, the law. And he says, by this you people will know that you are mine. What sets you apart? You obey my commandments. And so they walked in the law of the Lord, and that's what made them God's people. That's what gave them their godly identity. They ate a certain way. They didn't eat another certain way. They walked a certain way. They rested when it didn't make sense to anyone else to rest. They were very specific about how they thought about food and, and sanitary laws and all these ceremonial laws. The, the, the thing that made you a godly person was obeying the godly rules. That's what made you who you are. That's what sets you apart. Most of the laws that, that you see in the Old Testament when you read Leviticus and you go, these are ridiculous. It's not that those are the laws that are required for like this perfection, right? Like if you somehow eat shellfish, it, it's, it, it was there to set them apart. And especially a lot of those kind of ceremonial or civil laws they existed to contrast the ways that other cultures were acting. So like a lot of the food laws that we see in the Old Testament, God gave them those because where they were, people were eating that way and he wanted them to look distinct. He said, not so with you. Right? And so the Jewish people, when the New Testament starts to roll around and they're resistant to Gentile inclusion, it's not so much a we are better than you, it's a what do you mean they're part of the promise? They're not doing any of the things that you for centuries have said are what makes you part of the promise. Right? Circumcision. They don't offer sacrifices. They're not, they're not doing these, these things that they're supposed to be doing. They didn't obey the laws. They didn't sacrifice animals. They didn't follow the cleanliness laws. They did a whole bunch of stuff that you have told us for years and years and years we shouldn't do. And so when Paul comes in and he starts to talk about their sudden inclusion, it baffles the Jews. That's why Paul calls the whole thing a mystery. He says, look, this doesn't make earthly sense. This idea that the Gentiles are heirs doesn't make sense to you. No, it doesn't. Well, it shouldn't. It's a mystery. What is a mystery? Something that wasn't naturally comprehensible to you, but has been revealed to you now through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Gentiles are heirs to the kingdom alongside of you. And it, 
It baffles them. It's not supposed to. It's a mystery, but God has revealed it. The Gentiles who don't in any way act the way that the Christians of that time, the Jewish Christians, thought you should act, right? they're not doing any of the things, they're not going through any of the motions, they're not talking like you should, they're not walking like you should, they're not worshiping like you should, they're not doing any of the stuff. All of a sudden, Paul, you're saying that they're included in it just like we are. They're now part of the family, not through how they act, but nothing but by the death of Christ. But Paul says they are. Right. And in that verse 6, he says that they are fellow heirs, which means they have the same entitlement to the inheritance than the Jewish people do. Right. That's what it means to be an heir. You get to inherit. Right. They are members of the same body. Their status is exactly equal to everyone else. You're a leg, they're a leg. You're a hand, they're a hand. You're an ear, they're an ear. So they're on equal footing with you in terms of the inheritance they get. They're on equal footing in terms of who they are. And they are equal partakers of the promise. They get to participate and partake in the promise in every way that the Jews do. In other words, the Gentiles don't just get some little privileges. They don't get to come and be visitors. Right? Like we have a congregational meeting. If you're not a member, you can come, but you can't vote. That's not the Gentiles. They get the vote, too. All of a sudden, one day to the next, Paul comes in and he says, they have the same rights and privileges and statuses that you do. They are a citizen. It's not a green card. They are a full-fledged citizen. And the Jews don't know in any way what to do with it. Right? And here's the kicker. When they become citizens, Jewish people... We're not going to ask them to adopt any of the, of the customs. Wait, like, so we don't have, they don't have to circumcise to come in the door? Nope. But, 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 how does, how does, but how does that work? Well, they don't. Because Jesus' blood is all they need. My hope is that we can start to see a little bit how this might apply to our modern age. See, we are the church, and, and we as Stoprez are one local expression of, of that church and how it looks, and we all are and act and look a certain way, right? We're all different. We're unique individuals, but there's a lot that makes us the same. But we are one expression, and the gospel says that the promise of Jesus goes out to all people, and that means the world outside of here has the same opportunity and privilege of access as we do inside of here. And the only thing that they need is to call Christ their Lord and Savior. And we think that that sounds great in theory, right? But in principle, that can be really, really hard to understand. Here's the key. They don't have to become or act like us in here to be part of the heirs of this promise and the kingdom. That means that people out of this wall who are nothing like us, in terms of how they act, in terms of how they are, who they live, what their, what their race or background is, or what their, their way of thinking is, what their political inclinations are. And now we're getting into hot water, right? They get to come in here, and they get to be heirs of the same promise, and they get to be partakers of the same promise, and they get to be part of the same body with the exact same rights and privileges as you and I who have, you know, I've been here for 20 years. I've earned my... Yeah, Paul would say, it doesn't matter. Same promise. But they don't, they don't act like we do. They're really rowdy in worship. And we're good Presbyterians. Paul would say, tough cookies, deal with it. They're part of the promise. Right? Now, 
this is where this becomes a real challenge for us, right? What happens when the influx of Gentiles starts to change how things operate? What happens when, or theoretically if, more of them than us are all of a sudden here? And they do things differently than we've done them. See, most of us have grown pretty comfortable, right? We, we make jokes in Presbyterianism about change, but it's, it's kind of sad. Those jokes are grounded in some level of reality, aren't they? You know, like, how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Right? <laughs> and those are funny, but here's, here's the reality. Uh, a week before Easter, we redid the seats in this congregation. Raise your hand if you realize that we redid the seats in the last month. Okay. If you didn't notice, kudos to you. You might not be Presbyterian. <laughs> You've been a member here for 30 years, but you know, maybe rethink. But we rechanged the chairs and we moved some stuff around. We didn't, like, one thing is we didn't have a center aisle. Um, it was very strange. Like, our center aisle was here and it was just visually, if you're standing up here, it was driving me nuts. And so you're trying to lay out this room, and it's not an even room, right, unless you ignore all this section here. And so I'm talking with some people about how to kind of move the chairs and where to put them. And I remember talking to Shonda about it in the office and, and some folks that had come in throughout that week. And there's some things that I wanted to do that they were lovingly informing me that I would get so much blowback it would start the chairpocalypse of, of 2023 if I change those things, right? Imagine all of you lovely people here. What if you came in next Sunday and this whole section didn't exist anymore? What if we just took the chairs down? How many of you would just, it would take you 10 minutes to figure out what to do? Like, the reality is there's plenty of chairs, right? We could probably just have like these two sections and we'd be fine, but oh, the wings. Blowback would be hard. Tithing would go down, right? Now, now think about this. It's a chair that you sit in. And think about, and I'm not judging you. If I, I grew up in the church before I stood up here every week. I was in the pew every week, and I had my pew. Um, this week when we went to Presbytery, I told Britta, listen, I'm worshiping next to you. That, like, never happens. You get to pick and sit wherever we want. And she sat in the exact geographic, physical location in the sanctuary, like, that she sat in, in the church that she grew up in with her parents. Like, two-thirds of the way back on the right, right off the center pew. That's where we sat. That's just instinctively where she went, right? Because we're so ingrained in it. But think about it. If you're that automatically on guard and up and at him about the seat that you sit in in Sunday morning worship, you get to start to get the idea that change might be hard for us, right? That's such a silly thing. I thought about maybe in July having what we call, like having like, you know, fire drill Sundays where every Sunday you come here, the church chairs are laid out completely differently. <laughs> One day you come in, they're in a circle and you're like, just to see what we, you know, how it would feel, just for a month, and then we'll put it back so no one has to freak out, but it could be fun, right? We do not like change. We don't like it, and we don't, certainly don't like when new people become part of a Christian community and want to do things a little differently. What happens if we start to change the way worship looks? Forget chairs, Right? What if we change how many songs we do or how, how the, the preaching happens in the midst of the service? Maybe it's at the beginning. Maybe we switch things around. What happens if the, the favorite song of yours all of a sudden kind of doesn't show up as much anymore or some new stuff starts to show up that you didn't really like so much? Or what happens if the liturgies change a little bit, right? They may alter 
the way that things look. They may disrupt the traditions that we've had for years, but we've always done it this way. It's amazing how quickly we ingrain church to our own custom liking and habits. Now, now don't hear me saying that those things are bad. Don't hear me saying that habits and traditions are bad things. They aren't. But one of the things that happens is we get so stuck in our own way that we get defensive about that's the way church is supposed to look. And, and it's, it's funny, you know, one of the joys of Presbytery is that you get to go to a bunch of different churches and you realize really quickly that worship looks radically different in every sanctuary in America. They're not the same. But for those churches that are faithfully following Christ... There are many of them that have worship that looks nothing like ours, that is faithful and true. Right? And those people are worshiping God in spirit and in truth every week, week in and week out. Here's the reality, guys. 20 years from now, this church isn't going to look like this. Some of you will move. Some of you will die. Others will come. The guy standing up here might have hair. I hope so. You've had enough bald pastors. Like, if and when my time comes, please hire somebody with hair, maybe with a mullet, something special, right? But the things change, and they may change how things run, and it's important to understand and make no mistake about it. Paul is clearly stating that we as Christians need to be willing to deal with that. Jesus' death and resurrection shifted God's people from custom-based to gospel-based. And our faith is no longer based on ritual, it's not wrong to have ritual. Ritual is good. There's things that we do year in and year out, traditionally, that are part of the rhythm, right? That get us ready and prepare our hearts and minds, and they, they shape us, and they mold us, and they change us, and they're good, right? We, we still have liturgy, but not for its own sake. It might look a little different. And that's okay. We might radically change over the years. But one of the things that happens when we say Gentile inclusion is that we say we're willing to that. The only thing that we're going to die on, the only hill we're going to die on is Christ. Everything else is malleable. And we're flexible. And we're willing to shift around to reach the culture that currently exists as they are. And if, and if this culture thinks more this way, then we'll start to adapt and think more this way and find ourselves functioning more in these spaces. I remember, so for me, my time of youth ministry was kind of evenly split in the pre- and post-social media era, and I had to learn how to do all this social media stuff. You might think I'm, I'm young, but that wasn't in my blood. I didn't grow up with it. All of a sudden, I found that I was doing ministry in those places. And to you, that might sound crazy, and to me, it kind of sounds crazy too. But like, I had to learn that or I wasn't going to reach Right? The way we reach, the way we understand the culture, the way it understands the gospel, and the way that we preach the word changes. The word never changes, but the method does. And we need to be willing to adapt. Now, Paul um, isn't heartless in all of this. Right? You might think of Paul being like, if you like things a certain way, get ready to have your world blown up. Just deal with it. Right? That's not what he's saying. Paul has, has a real heart in this, and that's why the second whole half of the, of the, of the Ephesians chapter 3, right, verses 14 down through, through 21, those, those verses are all a prayer. So he tells the people this, and then he prays for them because he understands how hard of a reality to embrace that is. He knows that for the Jewish people to lay down the customs 
is, is a crazy radical change. He says, look, it's a mystery. There's no natural way this would make sense for you to do this. But it's been revealed to us by the gospel of Christ, and so now we carry forth. And church looks different. The temple looks different. Everything, everything's going to be different. Because from people from all tribes and nations and tongues are now a part of this heir, this family. They're heirs to the promise just like you, and they're naturally going to kind of shape the way things look and the way things are. And so as he concludes by praying for them in a reminder, he asks that they might be granted strength and power to cope with this radical change and to, to, to embrace it and to carry it out well because he knows just how hard it is. We don't want to change our seat, let alone something tangible and important. God knows that about you and I. And there's, there's mercy and grace in the midst of that, but it is something that he calls us to. It's not something that we get to escape from. He doesn't say, well, because I don't want to disturb your comfort, I'm going to allow you to keep doing things however you want. That's not how our God operates. Right? He says, you need to change. And we say, well, we don't want to. And he says, I know. And I love you. And I'm going to help you do it slowly over time. I'm going to be gracious with you. I'm going to carry you. But I am going to push you. And it's going to get uncomfortable at times. But guess what? I'm with you, and you're going to be okay. We need to understand who owns this place. I don't own this place. The session doesn't own this place. The, the congregational voting members don't own this place. The Lord owns this place. It's his house. And he's going to do whatever he wants to do with it. He's going to take people out of here and put them back or bring in new ones. He's going to have, he's going to have people leading this place you think about the reality that there's a chance that there will be a whole session running this place, none of which are here yet in like 10 years. Like that's a possibility. The entire leadership of the church may or may not even be in this room at, the time, at this time. That's how God works. He carries things forward. And if you're here because it's your comfortable place, ask the Lord for wisdom. If your inclination is, well, if you move my chair, I'm going to another church. Mm, we love you, but, but think about it. That's all I ask. Just think about it. And I promise you, I swear to you, not a chair will change from next week. Like, I'm not going to do it to you. This isn't like some precursor where he's like, is he going to make a change? Is he trying to soften the blow? No. Like, these chairs will be exactly how they were today when you come back next week. That is my vow to you. Um, they're measured and beautiful, and that's how they will stay. But we have to ask the Lord for wisdom and a willingness to have our hearts shift and change as he calls us to. This is hard stuff, and I think every one of us has stuff in this place that we just hold a little bit too dear. I know I do. I have things in this place that if the Lord wants to change them, he's going to have to pry them out of my cold, dead hands. But guess what? The Lord will not have dead hands. He'll pry them out of my cold, living hands. And he'll say, tough cookies, kid. This is how this is going to be. And I'll get behind the bus. And the Lord is good. And gracious, slow to anger, full of mercy, abounding in love, right? So my prayer is that we might be boldly willing to commit to the mystery, that we would be not just fresh as a new church, but that we would go along with Jesus's plan for this place, this community, whatever it looks like, so that we can make the mystery known to those in this world who need it the most. Right. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that you are the one that carries us. You carry us, not just in life, but as a church. 
You are the one who shapes our coming and our going. You are the one who controls how much money comes in or doesn't come in. You are in charge of all things and sovereign. And we praise you. We're grateful. Lord, we pray that you would shape our hearts. That you would slowly soften those things that we hold dear that need to go. We don't even know what they are yet. Some of us are holding on to things in this church that we don't know we're holding on to because we're comfortable and until they're challenged and tested, we don't even think about these things. But Lord, we pray that we would have open hearts and minds to be able to move as a church nimbly and boldly however you want us to for your kingdom and your sake. We love you and praise you. And all those people said, Amen. Amen.